Great to be with you. Really good to be with you. For those of you who are checking out things online, nice to, nice to have you join us that way. But it's really, really, really good to be with live flesh and blood people. Rather preach to a, a group of people that I can see than just at a, at a camera. And so it's nice to be, it's nice to be with you, Crossridge, in this way. And, and just to double down on what Lee mentioned. Yeah, if you can just remember to pray for us. Pray for Pat and I and others who will be a part of the, the launch of a new ministry in the city. We'd very much appreciate it. We, we need your prayers desperately, especially in the midst of trying to navigate launching something new in the midst of, you know, all of the uh, restrictions that we're living with. Um, and so please join us, please, in prayer. Uh, we would love your support, need your support desperately. As Lee mentioned, we're in the book of Proverbs. You are in the book of Proverbs. You've been in a series all summer that... I believe you're finishing off next week. We're in chapter 8 this morning, so if you haven't yet found it, we're looking at verses 1 to 21. Just to remind you, if um, if you haven't been a part of this whole series and what we're looking at today, over the last seven or so chapters in this, in this letter, there's been this constant ask by Solomon, the author of the book, to his son keeps on calling out to his son to heed his instructions. Just to remind you of some of the things that you've looked at, if you double back all the way back to chapter 1, verse 8, the, the, book, starts, the book starts there in that verse with the call of so- Solomon, hear my son, your father's instruction. But that, that refrain goes out again and again. In fact, most of the chapters that you've looked at begin in a similar way. Chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you receive my words. Chapter 3, same thing. Chapter 4, same thing. And so on until you get to chapter 8. And now in, in our text, in the 21 verses that we're going to be looking at, what happens is that in this portion of the letter is that wisdom comes calling again. She's called out already back in chapter 1, verse 20, but wisdom, and she's personified in female terms, she comes calling again. There's this move away from the call by Solomon to the son to wisdom calling out on her on her own. And as what we're, what we're going to do today as we walk through our text, I'm going to have us notice four things that she reveals of herself. So wisdom comes calling this second time, but we want to notice four things that she reveals in what she says. Let me give you the four on the front end, and then we'll double back and we'll look at the look at them one at a time. The first thing that we'll see that she reveals is that she is available to all. That's number one. Secondly, she makes fools wise. Third, she offers a better way to live. And then finally, she promises a life of prosperity. She's going to reveal all four. Let's double back on them and, again, hit them one at a time. So first, she is available to all. Our text, as you look at it in verse 1, actually begins with two questions. Just look at them with me. The first question, does not wisdom call? And secondly, does not understanding raise her voice? The answer to both is yes. She does call. Wisdom does call. In fact, like a mom who has to call her kids for a third time to come to dinner, she's not hesitant in raising her voice. But who is she calling to? Like, who is her audience? Well, that answer comes in noticing where she's calling from. Look at verses 2 and 3. On the heights beside the way, 
At the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out. Which tells us what? Well, it tells us, tells us that she's out on the streets. It, it, it means that she is setting up her wisdom stand, so to speak, where the people are. She's with the commoners and the laborers and those who are simply just trying to scratch together an honest day's work. In other words, my point is this. She's not hunkered down in some ivory tower somewhere, some inner sanctum of some sacred space. She's, she's not at the club. She, she's not on a mountaintop. She's down with the ordinary people. She's with you and me. As one writer put it, she's like a merchant hawking her wares in the marketplace. Meaning what? Meaning wisdom. She, wisdom, is accessible to all. In fact, she pursues all. She's the one who calls out. She cries out. She raises her voice. That's who she is. That's where she's calling. That's who she's calling to. You know, I I don't want to ruin the punchline of this message by getting ahead of myself, but when I was reading in preparation for this morning these three verses, my mind immediately went to the parable of the great banquet. You know the one I'm talking about. If, If you don't, just listen to the words of Jesus. You can read them on the screen as well. But as I read the parable of the great banquet, consider how this parable mirrors our text, what we've seen thus far. Jesus said in Luke 14, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, What you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel my people to come in, that my house may be filled. Do you hear that? Go to the heights, going back to our text. Go to the crossroads, go to the portals, go to the gates, go to the highways, go to the hedges and compel my people to come in that my house may be filled. Do you see the similarities? More more on the connection between Jesus and Proverbs 8 to come. However, before moving on, there's something else that's very important to see just in these first three verses that we can't miss. And please hear this. This is is key for us as as we put a, a wrap on this later on. That being, what we must not miss is that the attainment of wisdom Wisdom that is truly wisdom. Wisdom as God defines wisdom isn't so much a quest, but a response to a call. Wisdom cries out. Wisdom calls out. Wisdom pursues. Later on in verse 17, we'll we'll see the flip side of this when we are told to seek wisdom diligently, but don't miss the point But that before we seek, we must first be called. 
more on this in a, in a little bit as well. So first, what, what does wisdom reveal? First, she reveals that she is available, accessible to all. But second, she also reveals that she makes fools wise. Take a look at verses four and five. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Sounds good, doesn't it? This actually doubles down on the previous point that she's accessible to all, even to fools and simple ones. It's great. She makes fools wise. She helps the simple ones learn prudence. Sounds, again, great. But there's a problem with it, right? There's a problem with verses 4 and 5 as I, as I share that with you. And the problem is this. We don't like to think of ourselves as fools and simple ones, right? We're the wise ones, you and me. We're the intellects. We've got degrees, right? We read big books with no pictures. That's us. That's us. We, we've got degrees. We can build buildings. We can, we can discover remedies. We can, we can finally get a vaccine. I mean, that's us, right? That's us. We, we've been around the block. We can split atoms and build towers and, and so on. That's us. We're no fool. We're not simple. And besides, didn't Jesus himself say in the Sermon on the Mount that we're not to call anyone fool? In Matthew chapter 5, in fact, he says in Matthew chapter 5, if we call anyone fool, we're liable, we're, we're liable to hell. So what gives Solomon? Why, why is Solomon saying this to us? How do we deal with this? How do we reconcile this? Well, in one sense, we're right. Meaning we, as humanity, collectively have achieved a lot, especially recently in our history, when I say recently in the last hundred years, it's been said that of the 100% that humanity has learned over time, 90% of it has been learned in the last hundred years. In other words, it was like we were doing addition with single digit numbers for a long time. And in the last hundred years, we just jumped to quantum physics. So we have achieved a lot. And again, we have achieved a lot recently, so maybe we are the wise ones. Maybe we are the intellects. Maybe Proverbs chapter 8, verses 4 and 5 isn't for us. It, it was for them 2,700 years ago, but, but not us, right? Maybe we don't need to know this. Maybe this isn't relevant to us, but knowing what we know of the Word of God, knowing what we know of the Word of God being timeless and transcendent and, and all-sufficient and true for all generations. That can't be. So what then? How do we deal with this? Well, the answer comes in knowing that in God's economy, in God's kingdom, wisdom isn't connected to, to intellect nor achievement. It's connected to faith and obedience. You, you can be the smartest richest, most successful person in the room and still be considered a fool in God's eyes. The fool is the one who says in their heart, there is no God, according to Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, regardless of achievement. In fact, the fool is the one who stores away in barns 
according to Jesus. Paul actually doubles down on this, and you can again read this on the screen in in Romans chapter 1, when writing of those who, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things creeping thing. Hmm. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of something else, and in that, wisdom was replaced with folly. Look, I don't know all of you, and I certainly don't know who's watching online, but if you're one who doesn't believe in God to say nothing of following Jesus, I'm not saying you're not smart. More than, more than likely, you're smarter than me. I'm just saying that you're not wise, in God's eyes at least. And the reason is, is because you're, you're living a life of exchange, a life settling for less than what could be yours as you choose not to acknowledge the one who created you, and that is the a pit of me of foolishness. To, to live a life as a, a created being without acknowledging your creator and, and living in light of that relationship that you can have with him, that is the definition of biblical foolishness. In, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus says that wisdom will be shown by her fruit. And fruit in that context... Uh, speaks of those things that build the kingdom of God. In the book of James, James chapter 3, verse 17, James writes that wisdom from above, and there is wisdom from above, that comes down from heaven. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who, who makes peace which is essentially what Solomon writes next in our text. Look at verses 6 and 7. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Just just notice what Solomon writes here. Wisdom, nobility, rightness, and truth, all those things that run in contrast to the wickedness that is also mentioned which again is the antithesis of of wisdom for what should follow wisdom is a harvest of righteousness as we just just read about in in James. Here's why this is so encouraging, and I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but have you ever felt like the dumbest guy in the room? Maybe been in it, some of us may feel, I may feel like that right now. The dumbest, you've been at a dinner party and the conversation around the dinner is one that you just don't feel like you have any insight, you can't chime in. You actually, in fact, don't even know what they're talking about. They're talking about some perhaps foreign policy or, or medical advancement or political chicanery. And you're sitting there and you're going, I'm not even sure what chicanery means. I mean, that's you ever been there. I mean, it's a terrible place to be. It's the worst. Nobody likes to feel like the most foolish or, or dumbest or unintellectual guy at the table. I mean, who would? But here's the reality, and here's the beauty of this. The Bible doesn't promise that moments like those won't come. 
But what it does promise, the, the sweetness of this promise, is that if you live a life of belief and faith and trust and obedience to God and his ways, he sees you as the wisest person in the room. The question is, whose opinion means most to you? Just again, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And once again, notice, take what we just heard in in that text and notice one more time how it mirrors in our passage what what comes next. Look at verses 8 to 11. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare to her. Do you you believe that? Like honestly, as we we just press pause here, do you believe, do you believe, if you are in Christ, do you believe that what you have received from him from above is beyond compare? Better than jewels and, and choice gold. Do you believe that? That question, that all-important question, leads to a third truth that wisdom reveals of herself. We've seen two already. The third revelation, she offers a better way to live. Let's take a look at verses 12 to 16. I'll show you what I mean. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Let's just stop there. There is a lot here in these verses, what I just read. But I just want to I want to point out just two things above all, two things that we can't miss. The first comes from something we we see at the beginning of verse 12. Just notice verse 12 one more time. When wisdom says, I dwell with prudence. We saw the same word actually used back in chapter 5. It's a word that speaks of sensible behavior. It's, It's a word that when it's coupled with Knowledge and discretion, as we read of here, promises to teach us how to, how to live in such a way, as one Hebrew scholar put it, to live a discreet and careful life as opposed to a reckless one. In other words, to put it in simpler, in simpler language, she offers a better way to live. We can't miss that. I want to highlight that, number one. But secondly, what I also want to point out, 
is that in verse 13, we are reminded how wisdom is attained. We've talked a lot about wisdom already. We talk about how it offers this, it gives us this, how it's, it's calling out to us, how it goes to the simple ones, it goes to the streets, but we haven't answered the question. How do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Well, verse 13, we're reminded, we're reminded when Solomon mentions the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This takes us back to chapter 1 where we read in verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So there's our answer. How, how do we attain wisdom? Well, wisdom comes in fearing the Lord. But what's the question that some of you, I'm sure, have? What does that mean? Right? Wisdom comes, knowledge comes in fearing the Lord. Okay, norm. What does it mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, forgive me if you've gone over this already, and I'm sure you have. So if you, if you in fact have, simply take this as a reminder. But the fear of the Lord, especially as the word fear is used in the Old Testament, is a positive idea that, that speaks of a, an inward awe and reality, meaning the fear of the Lord speaks of recognizing that God is God, but he's a God that doesn't repel us. He's a God who attracts us. It's recognizing that God is a God of, of love and compassionate, compassion who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. With our desire, when we recognize and find ourselves attracted to that God who reaches out to us, it leads to a place where we want to please a God like that and to believe that he only wants what is best for us and he instructs us to that end, that he's, he's not holding cards behind his back. He wants what is best for us. And we know that the fear of God doesn't speak like some have talked about it, speak of being frightened or terrified of God. Because his perfect love casts out all fear, according to 1 John 14. And that he hasn't given his children a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. A frightened fear, a, a terrified fear, which God doesn't give, again, is the antithesis of faith, which is why Jesus says numerous times to fear not. In fact, in that great scene with Jesus and, and the synagogue ruler Jairus, spoken of in Mark chapter 5, he says to Jairus, Jairus, do not fear, just believe. So living in the fear of God is being attracted to that God, recognizing who God is. Understanding that he's a loving God who wants best for us, isn't it? A God who instructs us to that end. It's saying, God, you are God and I am not, and therefore you know best and love me perfectly and have my best in mind, and therefore I'm going to trust you. And I'm going, to go, I'm going to live in light of that reality. And when we come to that place, Crossridge, when we come to that place, wisdom invades us. Wisdom invades us. So, something supernatural, something spiritual, something otherworldly takes place. And do you know why? Do you know why? Because wisdom isn't so much a what, but a who. And that who 
is Jesus. Do you remember the scene in Acts chapter 4? I was thinking about this this morning. This is an add-on. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested by the Sanhedrin and are brought before the Sanhedrin. They have this back and forth and essentially say, guys, you've got to stop talking about Jesus. And they're in this wrap-up to that back and forth where Peter and John got, you know what, you can tell us what you want, but we're never going to stop talking about Jesus. In the wrap-up to that, and it's not going to be on the screen, you can look it up for yourself. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is what Luke records for us. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, simple ones, they were astonished. And this is what we read next. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Astonished at their boldness and their courage. Why? They got it. They had been with Jesus. Jesus had invaded them. Entirely changed them. A couple other verses that speak to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Paul writes there, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit, here it is, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. How does it come? In the knowledge of him in the knowledge of him. Another text that speaks to this is in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. Again, Paul writes there, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the deb- debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to to Gentiles. By the way, just as an aside, but it's an important aside, they preached They preached a message that caused some to stumble over it and some to call it foolishness, but they kept preaching the same message. They they kept preaching the same message. We have the same call. It doesn't mean the reaction is always going to be positive, but notice what Paul says next. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not a what, but a who. With that ringing in our ears, look at verse 17. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. Crossridge. A concept, uh, a theory, a, a list of tenets can't love you. Only a person can. And he does. And again, his name is Jesus. Jesus, the very embodiment of wisdom. In Jesus, wisdom came and fleshed himself up. After all, it's by him that all things hold together. And therefore, it's by him that 
that counsel is found as we go back to Proverbs 8 and insight and strength too. In a callback to our text as well, as well, it's only by him that kings reign. It's only by him that rulers decree. It's only by him that princes lead. It's only by him that nobles govern. This is the punchline that I hinted at earlier. What's the punchline? The punchline is that Jesus is all over Proverbs 8. Jesus is Proverbs 8. Jesus is the one who calls, doesn't he? He calls and his sheep hear his voice. Before we seek, we have to be called. And he calls. We seek him because he calls us first. Jesus is the one who is accessible to all. He's available to all. Jesus is the one who came and he dwelt with us. And not in an ivory tower somewhere. Not on a mountaintop. He went to the streets. He hung out with tax collectors and, and, and sinners and prostitutes and the, and the outcasts. That's Jesus. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was born in a barn and crucified naked. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings righteousness and truth. Jesus is righteousness and truth. And he invites us to build our life upon him because Jesus is the better way to live, right? Jesus is the only way to live. Jesus is the one who is more precious than silver and choice gold and jewels. Nothing can compare to him. I've asked the question before, but I'll ask it again. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is the better way? The only way. He's the one who brings righteousness. He's the one who calls out. He's the one that we are to have an inward awe and reality. We are to give ourselves to him, build our life upon him, the rock that is Jesus, so that when the storms come, we won't crash. Do you believe that? And if you do, Then, then you must also believe that Jesus, as again, we go back to Proverbs 8, that Jesus is the one who, who hates evil and wickedness. He hates it. You have to believe that too. Wickedness is an abomination to him. We have to believe that. But the good news is, the marvelous news is that he took it for us in our place. He took what he hated upon himself because of what it was doing to us. And he offers what we most need in exchange for free. What power? What, what wisdom who, who came down? A stumbling block to some, certainly, and foolishness to others, but to those who are called? To those who are called. Jesus, the power and the wisdom of God. If, if you haven't received his work, if you haven't received his work, that gracious replacement work that he offers, received only by faith, 
I, I have only one question for you. Why are you being so foolish? He wants to give you what you need most free of charge. He wants to remove what ails you and me most free of charge, a free gift, a gracious gift received only by faith so that none of us will boast. With Jesus in mind, let me read the last four verses of our text. But as I do, please hear his voice calling out to you. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. And what a treasury! which is the final truth that wisdom reveals of herself. She, wisdom, she, Jesus, promises a life of prosperity. Prosperous beyond what we could ever think or imagine. A life that is truly life. Abundant life. Eternal life. Far more valuable than gold, even fine gold. A, a life of prudence and, and sense and, and nobility and, and righteousness and justice. Life of enduring wealth. Riches in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. She offers that. Jesus offers that. A life that is entered with our Jesus saying to us, Well done, my wise daughter. Well done, my wise son. Enter forever the joy of your father. When we see wisdom manifested in Jesus, it, it, it opens up, and I, I know the faithful teaching here, it opens up the beauty of the book of Proverbs because we just hear again and again the wonderful, wonderful news, the wonderful offering, the, the fulfillment of all of these things in Christ that can be ours in him. That can be ours in him. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you came to us. That you came. That you saw and you entered. You didn't hide yourself. You came to the streets and you called out, cried out, those, uh, those that desperately, desperately need you. And I thank you for coming and I thank you for the invitation. I thank you for the call. And I, I thank you for, for the better way to live being offered that you offer us. I thank you for the eternal promises. I thank you for what are ours in Christ, all of those things that are ours in Christ, everything, immeasurable riches in heavenly places. I thank you, and I thank you that, that we have you by way of the Spirit you sent in us. You've invaded us. 
And, and as you've taught in, in a number of places in, in the Gospels, that when we come to you and pray, you never, like a good father, you never leave us. Leave us and send us away empty-handed. You always give us more, more of you, more of the spirit of Jesus in us. We want more of you. We desperately need more of you. We want our fear, our awe, and our love, and our drawing close to be more and more day by day by day. For the things of this world become more and more strangely dim and for you to become a greater and greater treasure. So please, I ask that you pour yourself out in increasing measure on this ministry. Blessed, I pray. Give much wisdom. Give much wisdom to the leadership here as they navigate these strange times. And we know that when we're quarantined, even when we're quarantined, the Word of God is never quarantined. The Word of God will grow and grow and grow. Nothing can hinder the ministry of the Word of God as the Spirit draws men and women to the book that he wrote. So thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this ministry. Bless Lee and the rest of the leadership here. We love this ministry. I pray for protection and and your favor on it in, in greater and greater ways. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.